Inspiration comes from all over. For Tim Tully, the CTO of Splunk, much of the inspiration for his work can be found in science fiction, TV shows, and even the world of superheroes. Tim sees himself as sort of a Tony Stark, aka Iron Man, because he's helping build the tech of the future. In fact, he's been building forward-looking tech since the early days of the internet. On this episode of IT Visionaries, hosted by Mission CEO Chad Grills, Tim discusses how you can be aspirational in your design while still delivering exceptional usability. And he touches on the future of technology, including with mobile and where we are going with AR and VR. Enjoy this episode. This podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Did you know that Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So we caught you on, you said, a moderately crazy day here at Splunk? Uh, yeah, moderate. I mean, that's interesting because Splunk is a pretty wild company just in terms of the velocity it's fast paced and sure uh sometimes i mean sort of like in, inside baseball but i call it like dog years but in the most positive way definitely dog years could possibly insinuate like yeah, yeah. old working there it's actually super fast paced hyper growth i like in that in a very very positive way yeah it might be aging me a little bit but it's all it's all, <laughs> it's all worth it i think in the end yeah sure where'd you pick up the phrase dog years or where'd you hear that first I think I made it up. Yeah. Because I, I was like just that. like, my, in my first it's got year. Silicon Valley feel. Yeah, my first year was pretty wild because I'm not doing the job that I originally joined to do. I originally joined just to be sort of CTO and, uh, you know, technical direction and sort of typical CTO stuff. Sure. Now I run all of product and engineering and design, and that wasn't really what I came here to do. But uh, I've done things like that in past stops, so it wasn't a stretch or anything. Sure. Um, let's talk about some of those past stops. So you started your career at Sun Microsystems. Yeah, I worked uh, on the JavaSoft team really early, uh, mid nineties, cool. uh, before Java was even free. It was like, you had to buy a license and yeah. very early days of Java web server, which became servlets. And, uh, there was a, a browser called the hot Java browser and then, uh, worked on Mozilla for quite a while. Uh, if you guys remember Mozilla was the open source version of Netscape, which became Firefox sure. over time. But, uh, there's a Java runtime inside that. So at Sun, I'm curious, uh, you know, did you get to work with Bill Joy, any of the executive team? Did you learn from that group or you know, uh, what was that experience like? I uh, didn't work with Bill Joy. I was too low level gotcha. at that time. I was just the guy in the uh, small office sure. with uh, n not a lot of FaceTime with human beings, mostly in front <laughs> of screens, but definitely learned a lot. I mean, you, working with the guys, you know, who wrote the compiler, who, you know, they're down the hall and it's like a really... A lot of really, really smart people there for sure that I, I learned a lot from. I mean, yeah. that's, those are invaluable experiences. Yeah, that seems like one of the places in the Valley where there was a critical density of talent and so many interesting things spun out uh, and people and projects. Um, what was your biggest takeaway from working at Sun? Oh, wow. I think, honestly, just sort of what is high-end caliber talent look like and what does it feel like to work at just a massive company and what does it feel like to... I guess, it, you know, really I learned a lot around about what I would look like as a manager 25 years later, because you start to look, you start to see what good management looks like and sort of what it looks like to take care of your employees. And we certainly had that. I mean, there's some really interesting stuff that happened there. Like they used to have a book giveaway on Wednesday where you could, you could go to this closet and pretty much get any Java book you wanted. There was just like stacks of them. Nice. 
and they would run that program until people, until eBay started to get big. <laughs> and what happened is people would get all the free books and then flip them on eBay because everyone wanted Java books. So then sure. they shut that down. But, you know, they're giving away free drinks before everyone, you know, that was an obvious thing. Right. Well before the free food and all that. But that was, that was pretty novel. There'd be like a fridge of Snapples and Gatorades, which I don't think any other company at the time was doing. I mean, this was like really early days of the internet, right? Sure. So, yeah. Do you remember what any type of conversations like were at the time when people saw that type of investment into the people and into the culture? Um, did you know, were people making negative comments? Was it positive? Was it just like, whoa, this is new? Uh, I think there's just a little, a lot of commentary around what that expense was like long term sure. for the company. It was yeah. mostly around like, oh my God, I love this perk, but it, it must be expensive. <laughs> Can up. Yeah. 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 But at the time it was like the internet was taking off and it was such a rocket ship that I don't think anyone really worried too much, but, um, what were some of the uh, cultural inspirations for the work you're doing? So obviously, you know, you're trained, you have the, the formal uh, education background. Uh, is there anybody outside of that background, whether it's like Neil Stevenson, a writer, an author, a futurist, uh, an academic that you were really, you know, looking to or inspired by? Yeah, Neil, Neil Stevenson, I, I read, uh, you know, that's sort of obligatory computer science student sure. reading. Uh, you know, I think I'm a huge uh now I'm a huge sci-fi fan. Sure. Like I just binge watched a bunch of Westworld over the weekend. It's so I, it's I definitely great. draw inspiration from Westworld. Yeah. Not that I'm trying to create like autonomous sentient no, no. Uh, yeah. robots for Splunk, but just sort of the UX inspires me. Sort of like the forward looking themes inside the show is sort of inspiring. You can take sort of that idea that you can push the envelope so hard and apply it to pretty much any problem. And so that, that inspiration is definitely there. Uh, definitely the Marvel a cinematic universe, the MCU. <laughs> sure. Uh, people may think that that's strange that I'm inspired by that, but uh, Tony Stark. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think they've done a great job with uh, that. Tony Stark, I mean, he's a fictional character, but yeah. uh, in some ways, I would like to believe that there's a little bit of Tony Stark in me. Yeah. Uh, so Very I even cool. have a Funko. You know what Funkos are? No, what are, what are they? Do you go to Comic Con? No, I don't. Oh, are they just like the like the? They're like these like four inch tall vinyl dolls that are super super popular. Okay, I've seen them everywhere. I, th I think they're they like, have like a similar like. Uh, if you go to like Hot Topic right or something, there'll be like a giant wall of them. Yeah, yeah. But I'm basically, pretty they sure make I've one for like every possible pop culture reference that exists. Yeah. So there'll be like a Mark and Mindy one, and then there'll be like all the Marvel <laughs> Cinematic Universe ones. So I collect those. Oh, cool. And so I have a bunch of Tony Stark ones now. Nice. That's awesome. Um, do you feel like that type of uh, media that tells uh, stories of like a new future or uh, near term technology that's almost ready to use is important or is it, uh, you know, can some of those stories get too didactic? I think it's important for the reasons that I, I consume it, sure. which is largely inspiration. Right. In terms of being didactic, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I would say didactic. I think it gets spun out of control sometimes. Like, sure. One of the questions I get a lot of times when I'm speaking in a, on a panel, especially about AI or something, is, uh, you know, are the is the AI going to take over the universe and kill all human beings? And the, like, oftentimes my response is not in the next ten years, maybe fifty years from now, but it's not anywhere near that. But, sure, uh, that seems to be a popular question because people watch too much media. I think. Do you think that's a popular question because some of the more pressing problems are actually addressable? And do you feel like this is a distraction for most people where they claim to be worried about AI? Meanwhile, there are all these real world problems that we can fix each day that don't get adequate attention. Or I think it's because AI and ML is such a hot topic. Sure. So people ask that question because that's what they think that the audiences want to hear about. Right. It's just kind of trending. Everybody's right. saying exactly. it. Everybody's that's exactly about. what I think yeah. it is. Yeah. Very cool. So there, I think there were two roles prior to you joining Yahoo, um, where you were at, 
at for around 14 years. Um, your roles at iScale and Pillar, uh, could you talk about kind of like how those opportunities came up? And um, um, Yeah, iScale was a startup uh, started by a Stanford professor who unfortunately is no longer with us, a guy named Rajiv Matwani. And he basically wrote the book on what's called randomized algorithms. And so he was super famous. He was like an advisor to the Google guys and he helped them write their papers. And so super famous guy. I joined that company mostly as an opportunity to, to work with him. Sure. Uh, there was about seven of us on the engineering team that worked directly with him uh, very on cool. a daily basis and a bunch of really smart undergrads, uh, primarily from IIT, which is the Indian Institute of Technology, in India, which is like the most prestigious like college system or university system in India for technical studies. Uh, top students from those schools. So I was like, oh, dude, I'm going to work there. They were solving some really amazing stuff around uh, basically optimized caching of content on the internet. This is pretty early when Inkdemy was massive taking on these guys. And it's just a fantastic opportunity to learn a bunch of stuff and work at a small startup with one of the smartest professors around. Sure. You know, that just sort of uh, fell by the wayside when the, the bubble sort of imploded. Yeah. And then I left and joined Pillar Data Systems, which was another company that was basically trying to build NFS filers out of com commodity components, which is sort of a, ma a mouthful. Uh, but I it was a lot of fun. I, I learned a lot there, too. I got to write a lot of code and learn a lot about enterprise software and sure. how NFS works. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's not a glamorous thing, I wouldn't say. Uh, in the end, they got bought by Oracle, which is a good outcome for those guys. Um, but I, I left in order to join the sort of big data team at Yahoo. So, so at the time, I'm curious, it seems like there was a bit of an orbit and kind of cross pollination between Google, between Yahoo. They're, you know, they're doing business together a little bit. Um, so how'd you hear about the opportunity at Yahoo and why'd you take advantage of it? And Yeah, you know, it's an interesting story. To be honest, um, I had wanted to work at Yahoo for a long time. I think going back to even when I worked at Sun Microsystems, I wanted to work at Yahoo because that was sort of the internet at the time. I mean, even to this day, when I want to check whether my internet connection works, I ping yahoo.com, right? Right. It's just sort of what I think of in terms of the internet. And I actually got rejected for an internship there, I want to say in like 97. And so part of me wanted to like overcome that <laughs> sure. rejection and actually work there. Yeah. Uh, I think I actually saw a, a listing on Craigslist. Uh, to work at Yahoo. It wasn't like Monster or Hot Jobs or anything. It was actually Craigslist. And so I just sort of applied. Yeah, that was that was more what it was. I actually had opportunities to work at Google before that that I passed up because uh, at the time the comp wasn't just as, wasn't quite there, sure. to be totally honest. And um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, when you joined Yahoo about how big was the uh, data team and how big did it grow? Oh boy, yeah. So left? when I joined, yeah, you're going really deep. Uh, when I joined the team, it actually wasn't called the data team. I forgot what it was called. Like there was no such thing as big data. That didn't exist. And there was no Hadoop or anything because we were building the systems that became Hadoop. Uh, wow, the team was pretty small. And yeah, I guess it was called the data team. It must have been maybe 30 people, I would guess. Gotcha. Yeah. Were there any crazy ideas on the team about like the future of data? Anything that, you know, you see in your work today at Splunk where you're like, we knew it was coming, but now it's finally here type uh, things? Uh, in the early days at Yahoo? Yeah, in the early days or, you know, anything. In the um, early days, no, because I don't think any of us knew what we were actually getting no, ourselves. No, we could see like where everything was yeah, headed. Yeah, I mean, we were just trying to provide analytics to run the business, basically, gotcha. at the time. Just we wanted, like, there was a ton of data and we couldn't figure out how to get it to roll up the way we wanted. And so we we're just trying to solve the scaling problems more than anything. Sure. Nobody knew what we were actually getting in. Like, if they said that they knew, they were lying to you. <laughs> sure. 
Uh, I guess the big theme, yeah, there's a couple of themes I think that are coming to fruition now. One is around the whole notion of stream processing. Like, so stream processing is basically real-time data processing. And so that's something I was actually chasing pretty early at Yahoo going back to say 2007. Like I knew that that was sort of where things were going to be headed and this idea of running analytics against data at rest would go by the wayside at some point. Um, so I, I had actually built like various prototypes of those systems way long ago at Yahoo. I can remember doing it in 2007. Sure. So, yeah. but now fast forward to 2019, we're solving that problem at a much, much larger scale with much, definitely. much better products. And so you were at Yahoo for, uh, 14 years, I think you left as a VP of engineering. Um, what was that ride like and any, uh, you know, major stories stick out in your memory? Yeah. I mean, I joined as like a pretty low level, I mean, not not super low level, but uh, you know, staff engineer. I eventually became the chief data architect, and then uh, when I left, I was VP of engineering, running um, engineering for like what they call the media business, which is everything minus like Yahoo Mail and Yahoo Search, right? Pretty much. So Yahoo.com, finance, Yahoo Finance, Fantasy Sports, Tumblr, and then a bunch of the AOL stuff after Verizon acquired Yahoo. So AOL.com and Huffington Post. I mean, that was pretty interesting to say that I worked on all those things. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely a journey because my career was like sort of a, I mean, it definitely kept going up and up and up. And I can't say that I necessarily uh, thought it would turn out this way. I mean, I always sort of thought I wanted to be a CTO of a company sort of in the Tony Stark mold in some right. ways. And you can always sort of like hope that these things happen, but you can never be guaranteed. Right. right? And so uh, I'm very happy to be in this position. So I'm curious at Yahoo, uh, you know, there was a lot of things or there were a lot of things going on at the time. And I, I heard from a conversation with another guest that was on that the stake in Alibaba was a hotly contested thing at the company and the board. There was a lot of pressure to sell that. Um, certain people wanted to hold on to it. Uh, and it turned out being an incredibly valuable thing for the company. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. What are your thoughts on when companies make investments like that? Um, what are your thoughts when companies make big bets that are highly concentrated like that? Should they do it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly you should do it, uh, but I would stay conscientious of why you're doing it. There's sort of a couple of approaches you could take. One is it's a sort of financial outcome that you're looking for where sure. you, 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 know, you sell the equity piece that you have and you reap the benefits and then you reinvest it somehow. And then there's sort of like more a more strategic approach, which is they're sort of operating in your space more or less, and that's an asset that you would want to bring in and augment your portfolio with. Right. Uh, I would say Alibaba is probably maybe more the former, in my opinion. Um, some could look at it as a ladder. I see it more as a sort of economic outcome that was uh, fortuitous for everybody. Sure. Um, in terms of what to do with the asset. You know, I don't know. In the end, Marissa's going to do what she's going to do, and she's obviously very sharp. Very cool. So after Yahoo, what was, uh, you know, you mentioned you kind of wanted to go the, the Tony Stark route and do the CTO thing. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, what, that's some recency bias for sure. That, or? Yeah, I think it's recency bias because I went and saw uh, Spider-Man for the like third time this weekend. Um, the far from home one. Oh, cool. so that's like, the, the whole movie is about like the death of Tony Stark and like, like what happens to everybody afterwards and they mourn him like the whole way through. So I, I probably have some recency bias for sure. We'll have to pour one out. That's uh, that's sad. <laughs> I, I didn't realize I hadn't caught up with the universe in a while. Oh man, you're missing out. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Was it, was the question again? So first of all, was, um, outside of the movie and everything, uh, when you were leaving Yahoo, what was next for you? Where did you want to be a CTO oh, or did um, you just want to take, you know, did no, you take you, some time off? You or? know, I think I was having fun. 
at Yahoo, sort of juggling AOL in Yahoo um, from an engineering perspective and product perspective. But uh, I started to look at a bunch of opportunities that came my way and um, I started, sort of the Splunk one uh, popped up and I got to meet Doug and the rest of the e-staff over time. And uh, it was definitely right in my wheelhouse in terms of big data, the ability to push us into the cloud, to think about problems more broadly beyond just sort of what people think of as being Splunk today, which is log analytics. It's it's far more than that. And I had the opportunity to do even more with it. And so it was it was like probably the most perfect job I could have. Like I told my wife, like I told, I think the exact word that I shared with her was I, I was designed to do this job, <laughs> right? Because it, it's like, it's big data. It's leading a big organization. It's like thinking in, you know, far into the future and uh, being a technologist and, yeah, I mean, it was it was perfect. So when you originally came on last year, you were focused more on traditional CTO things. However, since you've added some design work and product work to your plate, um, can you talk about that transition? And because that seems like I'm sure there's some CTOs out there that are panicking, thinking like, oh, my God, what if that happened to me? Um, so, yeah, how'd you make that transition? Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, I did this at Yahoo, more or less. So it wasn't hard to do the transition. Um, I was definitely looking forward to spending time uh, writing more code here at Splunk. I mean, that's, at the end of the day, that's I am an engineer really inside, and so I was I was looking forward to sort of like having you know five hours a day to sit in the corner with my headphones on, <laughs> listen to Spotify, yeah, write a bunch of code, test some stuff out, um, and then sort of throw it over the fence to the engineering team. But in some ways, it helps to have product and engineering underneath me uh, because it helps me sort of accelerate the the vision that I want the company to uh, fulfill. And it, it makes things a little bit easier in terms of uh, having things happen. Sure. What I didn't actually see uh, was how much I would learn to appreciate design. And that's that was actually new. I think even at Yahoo, I was guilty of overlooking the importance of design. I didn't really understand. I mean, maybe I had to grow up a little bit more. I, I, I don't know. But at, at some point, you start to realize how important it is. And, and maybe I just had to reach a certain level of maturi- maturity or read more. I, I don't know what it was, but just something enough happened. enough training data sets and you can do anything. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. Something happened where I started to figure out like, you know, design is super, super important. And so we grew the size of that team, maybe 4X oh, wow. since, since I joined. Yeah, it's almost, I think, north of 60 now, I want to say. When I joined, it was like 13 or something like that. Um, and as we've really started to push the boundary on some of these consumer experiences that we talked about earlier before we started, um, and especially mobile, sure, um, you, you really start to gain appreciation for how important design is. Yeah. So I know you're a fan of the uh, innovators dilemma. I'd love to hear you talk about you know how that's guiding some of the work you do, and um, yeah, what that kind of means to you and your team. I mean, I, I definitely feel like when I joined there was a possibility that we were inter- entering sort of innovators dilemma territory. I mean, Splunk for a long time has been super successful with the products that we had. And it's so hard for not just Splunk, but really any company to get beyond sort of that first wave of, of product success. Uh, fortunately, Doug, our CEO, has been able to bless me with an R&D budget to uh, not really have to work through innovators dilemma in the traditional way. I mean, traditional innovators dilemma says you work with sort of the fixed set of resources that you have and try to figure out how to think about the next wave of innovation or next S curve. Uh, I was able to increase the size of the team by almost two and a half X 
while continuing to invest in our, our key business lines at the same time. Sure. So I, I'm, I'm pretty lucky in terms of, I, I can't say I have all the answers for an innovator's dilemma because I didn't have to solve it the traditional way. Uh, fortunately, our board and our CEO was supportive enough of the sort of revised budget enable for me uh, to enable me to get us out of it. But yeah, I mean, like we, we're doing all kinds of things beyond what people have thought of as being Splunk today. So stream processing, large scale, federated search, mobile, AR and VR, uh, most importantly, pushed us into becoming more of a, a SaaS or cloud-oriented company, Very cool. uh, not just on-prem. Um, so, yeah. You alluded to it earlier, but you kind of said that there are misconceptions around Splunk. I would love to hear, you know, what are the common misconceptions you, when you're meeting people, when you're out and about that you hear? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, that's a pretty fascinating question. Uh, so I meet a lot of customers, a lot of users. So people think of, when they think of Splunk, I think they think of two things. And it depends on who you're talking to and what role they play in which companies they're at. Most people, I would say, think of Splunk as being sort of log analytics. So they take all their logs from their applications and they put it in and then they build these dashboards or operational dashboards out of it. And then there's another class of buyer or user who thinks that we're just a security company in the so-called SIM space, right? Where you would run your security, your SOC, and you would see Splunk on the wall in the SOC. And usually we fall into one of those two categories. Turns out we actually have a really healthy IT ops business as well. And a lot of people, I, significant people know, but I don't think that's what we're most well known for. People either lump us into login analytics or security. Sure. And when it comes to customer success or designing UX and customer experiences and journeys that are delightful or uh, remarkable, um, how are you thinking about that? And um, yeah, how do you think about customer success from a, you know the CTO's vantage point? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I try to think of I think of myself. I mean, it sounds kind of strange, but I try to whenever we're thinking about a new product release or a new product version or new design. Uh, oftentimes, I'll try to put myself in the shoes of the user who would use that that product. And it's people will say that, but I think it's actually pretty easy for me to do because I was an engineer for so long. And I still write a lot of code even at home, right? I mean, I just sort of think that way sure. for whatever reason. Uh, so I just sort of think about it from that perspective. And some people call that empathy. It is certainly empathy, but I think it's 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 advantageous for me to have been an engineer for so long. Right. Because I can think about the usability of things. I can think about how I would use that tool uh, very easily. Uh, a lot of people have to sort of strain or work hard to think about it that way. For me, it's just sort of automatic because I did it for so long. I mean, I've been coding since I was like six. Wow. So it's like, yeah, I don't know if that's healthy or not, but that, that's what I did because um, my parents were both sort of in the valley as well. So it's actually pr pretty easy. And so, yeah. Sure. And so you're working a lot on design right now. How are you going about iterating your team's design processes? And uh, yeah, how are you trying to strike that balance between predictability and uh, experimentation? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Uh, well, I spend a lot of time talking to them on Slack. That's sure. one thing. Um, I tell them sort Is of- Is your emoji game strong or- No, no it's really, I'm all better. text. Yeah, I have Fair no enough. emoji. Yeah. yeah, no giffies, no emojis. Keep them guessing. I'm all like text. It. A lot of it on mobile. Uh, I basically give them a, paint them a picture of where I want to be. And so I do it in a couple of ways. One is I show them a Google image search of Westworld, which is what I did this morning was I said, look at this UX that this guy carrying this tablet around has. Like he was using it to like reformat one of the sort of sentient AI based robots, right? And the UX is like super insane. And so I'll just show them that more from an in inspirational standpoint because it's totally unusable because it's all just for movies, right? Right. But it's inspiration, right? And so I say, make it look like that 
maybe 10 years from now, I know it's totally unusable in its current state, but like, look how amazingly beautiful this is mm -hmm. and look how attractive it is. And think about if you were a user and you saw that for the first time, how overwhelmingly amazing you would see that our product is if you just looked at it. Forget the usability for a moment, just look how sexy it is. And then they, they get the idea that I'm, I'm willing to back away from the lack of usability, but it's more about setting the bar for where I want them to be. Sure. And then I sort of encourage them to be very, very focused on thinking about the user as more of a consumer-based experience as we, as we talked about earlier, right? Like, and I, I'll bring up Slack as a sort of example of a company that I think got it right. Right. It's a, it's really an enterprise tool. It's, it's wrapped up in a consumer interface that that's, that's the fact of the matter, but oftentimes people don't really think of it that way. Sure. And so I try to sort of dissect it in that way for the design team. And then we go back and forth a lot, uh, on Figma. So Figma, I don't know if yeah, you're familiar Figma's with great. it. Um, met Dylan, uh, last summer. Oh, okay. but yeah, so he's we're, awesome. we're like huge fans of that tool. Yeah. I, I spent a lot of time in it sort of just like looking over the shoulder, if you will, of, of the designers and giving them feedback and asking them questions on Slack. And sure. At first I thought that they would hate that because the, the designers are sort of like a particular crew yeah. and they're very sort of sensitive about their work. And I thought they would think I'm like backseat driving. Uh, turns out they, they love the appreciation that I'm showing for their work and the, in the attention and, uh, in the interest. Uh, so it was, it was actually quite the opposite of what I thought it would be, but Figma is a very, very powerful tool for us. Yeah. I was just getting ready to say it's, uh, it kind of makes design fun. Like if, if you like to nerd out about it, it makes it a lot of fun. So, uh, I would say if those guys are listening to our podcast, just make it use less resources. Cause there you go. It makes my computer really hot and <laughs> the fans like spins like 10,000 RPMs. <laughs> So Tim, how are you thinking about uh, recruiting for your teams now? So you're obviously not in the trenches every day with that, although I'm sure you're working on it every single day a little bit. Um, yeah, where are you at and uh, what's your philosophy behind recruiting? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things. One is just scaling out the number of engineers is starting to get harder and harder. Just because the, the company is getting large, we're going to be up to 1,400 people in the products team if, if we're not already. And so, you know, you need a certain level of sort of management structure and experience to be able to grow to that size. And we're going to, we're continuing to grow at a really rapid pace. Uh, it's not really slowing down. And so there's sort of like the structural aspects of it. And then there's like for certain roles, like, uh, architects in my team, um, I have a very particular approach to it, which is I look for a very high balance of IQ and EQ in people. And oftentimes I'll share this on panels and, and things that I think people over index on IQ too much. Not that IQ is not, obviously IQ is important. I'm not going to hire people who aren't super smart. It's just more, that's not everything, especially in technical leadership roles where a lot of that is, is sort of gaining consensus, consensus and buy-in into solutions to problems or visions of products that you want to go pursue. And that's where the EQ part comes in. And I think that a lot of people make the mistake of, of overlooking that. So, Are there any uh, places you recommend people get started learning about EQ if they want to go deeper? Is it Daniel Goleman or... Yeah, Daniel any, Goleman. So I used to yeah. hand that book out to yeah. people on my team. Yeah, I used to buy copies of it and just hand it out, especially the sort of like the archi lead architects sure. in the team, uh, definitely engineering managers. There's another book I got into recently uh, about Bill Campbell. Oh, the uh, trillion, trillion Dollar Coach. coach. Yeah, well, you excellent. know a lot, man. Yeah. Uh, no, I just, why I, you, even, you don't even have I to talk to me, man. You, you, you have all the answers. <laughs> no, no I, I don't. I'm, I mean not, that I'm the not most trying to interrupt. Trillion Dollar Coach is yeah. pretty amazing book. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So you, did you finish it yet? Or? No, not yet. I read the cliff notes of it, but oh, I cool. actually just recommended it to, uh, I, so I had a friend of mine 
asked me to spend some time coaching one of his new v uh, VPs of engineering. Oh, it's cool. a, actually a big startup overseas. And I actually rec just recommended those two books to her uh, nice. on Friday. So uh, that's fascinating to hear that you're uh, coaching. I'm curious, um, what's coaching like in the Splunk culture? You know, do you all work with executive coaches um, or what's that process like uh, if there is one? No, we don't all work with executive coaches. I mean, a lot of us do. Um, I think, yeah, Splunk has a very interesting culture, which is it's sort of very, very friendly, but also very, very direct at the same time. And so people don't really beat around the bush in terms right. of providing feedback. It's it, yeah. just trying to save time way. Like, in, yeah, I yeah. mean, we're just trying to move like a million miles an hour. And so there's no point in wasting time just like right. fluffing things up. We're just like almost brutally honest sometimes. And that can hurt sometimes, right? Because there's going to be miscommunications. There's going to be misunderstandings. So yeah, but how do you, how do you circle back? And, you know, obviously you do the calculus and you save far more time being blunt and direct, right? Or um, where do you feel like there's like emotional debt that piles up or something? There might be, but then you pay it down eventually over <laughs> sure. time. Yeah. I mean, people sort of acclimate themselves to the idea that there's no harm meant in any of that. It's more, we're just trying to do a million things and we're trying to do it really, really quickly. Sure. And so that's, that's really, it's, it's for the good of the company, not, not to be a jerk about things. Right. And we talked about a couple different, um, media topics earlier, and we're talking about VR and AR a little bit. Um, I would love to get into those subjects, uh, some here. What are you excited about in those fields? Um, it sounds like something you're interested in. Uh, are you researching them? Are you thinking about them? So, Definitely, I think mobile overall, forget AR and VR, I'll come back to AR and VR, but right. mobile definitely is a major theme for us just because I think the enterprise software in general has overlooked the idea of the importance of mobile. Because mobile is, I mean, there's like five phones here on the table as we're speaking and there's only four of us here. So one of us is carrying more than one phone. But anyhow, the point here is, is that people use their phone to do a lot of their job. I mean, I can do like 85% of my job on my phone. And so why, why is the enterprise software that we use all day long not fully functional on our devices and able yeah. it, like at our fingertips at all times? And in particular for Splunk, it's all about data. So my philosophy is mobile should be pretty much pervasive in every product that we have. And the data that Splunk provides should be accessible from every tablet and phone. And so that's why we've grown the, our mobile team. We've expanded our por product portfolio on mobile. Yeah, AR and VR are not exactly mobile, but they're in the ballpark, especially AR. So the idea with AR is that it's more of an accessibility play. So most people, when they think of AR, they think of like really toy apps where you can project like a purple dinosaur on a, on a table or something weird. And then it looks like it's real. I mean, it's cute, but it doesn't have a lot of uh, real world functionality. And so for us, AR is an accessibility play that makes data immediately accessible. And so we released uh, an app in uh, April, I'm going to say, in the iOS app store or Apple app store. And the idea is that you can associate any asset tag like a QR code or NFC tag or UPC code or geofence uh, with a Splunk dashboard. Oh, and cool. then point your phone at that asset tag and then just get your dashboard wherever you're at. And so as an example, if this microphone were emitting data that could be collected by Splunk, if there were a QR code on it or an NFC tag, I could just point my phone at it. And then I would actually see the Splunk dashboard overlaid on the microphone. Yeah, or, I can take, or I can take that dashboard and put it on the wall. Right. And then the app would actually remember where that dashboard lives in physical space relative to that asset tag. And so that opens up a lot of use cases in, you know, manufacturing, industrial, military. I mean, it's, it's really fulfillment centers. It's, it's really boundless. But what it, what it does is it makes data really 
instantaneously accessible, right? Yeah. Instead of pulling out a laptop and like VPNing in or sure. something strange, I just pull out my phone and just look at it. Right. Right. Uh, just that it augments the uh, end user, the end worker, the person who's trying to solve whatever problem, like it's going to give them almost superpowers, right? Yeah. I mean, and I think the end state for that tech is not actually the phone. It's actually the wearables, sure. right? So you can imagine we can easily lift that code, put it into say, you know, whatever form of glasses or goggles wind up coming out from the major consumer companies. Um, and it's just being completely hands-free. And then right. I would be able to just like look at something like that device there and, and see the data. And then we would be able to marry natural language processing to that as well. So then you're totally hands-free. You could look at something and say, hey, Splunk changed that dashboard to be sliced by these dimensions and then it would just happen. Right. Very so cool. I think that's the end state for that. But we didn't stop there. We also do, we have an Apple Watch app as well where you can look at Splunk dashboard on your watch. Splunk dashboards on your watch. You can pin it to the watch face. Oh, so nice. you can check a dashboard just like lifting up your wrist, like you're checking the time. Sure. And that's even easier than pulling your phone out of your pocket. So it's just all about making data accessible and immediate for the user. Cool. Um, so can we geek out about uh, Comic-Con uh, for a little bit? <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, great. So are you going this year or what's the, what's the game? That plan? was uh, last weekend. Okay, you, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So what, what was it like? How was it? And um, that's something you're really passionate about, right? Uh, I like it a lot. It's a lot of fun. I think my wife likes it about 10 times more than I do, uh, but it's a lot of fun. And I would like it a lot more if the lines weren't so long. So gotcha. here's the deal. Uh, the big event at Comic-Con is what they call Hall H. Hall, you never been to Hall? Uh, no, I've never. Yeah. You should never be ashamed of yourself. I'm, just, I'm like a fan everything. Just have been busy. Too many podcasts. It's true. Uh, so what happens at Hall H is that's where all the big uh, production companies do all their announcements. So that's where like Kevin Feige came out in the MCU and announced like phase four of the MCU. Oh, cool. So to get into that hall, there's a limited number of space and the like the subscription level for that's like 10x. So I think the halls like fits like seven or 8,000 people, but then there's like 100,000 people who won't want to get in or something like that. So what happens is people start lining up like days ahead of time. And so there's this sort of like subculture within Comic-Con where people like line up and they camp out like literally outside on the sidewalk. So I've like, I've brought sleeping bags and camping gear with me to Comic-Con and like literally slept like on the ground. That's uh, committed. Or, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty wild. They've cleaned it up a bit where they hand out these wristband bands and stuff. But I think I, to sit in that hall, I think just between late Friday night and Saturday morning, I was in line for 12 hours. I want to say, right. It could have been way worse, but just 12 hours just to sort of listen to what Marvel had to announce. Very yeah. cool. Um, shifting gears a little bit, I heard that there was an RFP from someone inside Splunk to get Keanu Reeves involved with this podcast or on one of our other podcasts. Oh. Can you confirm or deny? Yeah, that that would be me. I mean, Keanu Reeves is the internet's boyfriend, right? Like, Pretty much, yeah. That's what Reddit- That's putting it mildly, so, I think. Yeah, yeah. And then like, I'm really, you're talking about where you draw inspiration. I was definitely inspired by his performance in Always Be My Maybe. I don't okay, know if you cool. saw that movie where he basically, he plays like a totally ridiculous over the top version of himself that dates like Ali Wong. And, like, <laughs> I mean, it's worth it to watch that movie just to see his performance. Oh, cool. It's I'll check like, it out. Yeah. But he's he's amazing, man. I mean, he's- Yeah, like, classics. Yeah. It, it's Neo. Yeah, so, like, completely. Um did, was, was that a seminal moment seeing The Matrix when you were uh, younger? Uh, you know, I like I like that movie. I wouldn't say it's a seminal moment. I mean, I, I love those movies, but not as much as say like Star Wars or something. Gotcha. Like, I'm so like Star a Wars huge like Star. Yeah, I have like the foundation. Yeah, I mean, I I still buy the toys. Sure. Yeah, I still buy all the Legos and put them together with my kids. And gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So, are you based in South Bay or the city? And uh, if so, yeah, what do you what do you think about living there? 
I live in Menlo Park, gotcha. which is like right next to Palo Alto. I like the city a lot. It'd be, I mean, we were just talking about this before. It'd be hard for me to live in again, just because I split my time. So I, I spend probably about 30% of my time here in the city and the rest in the South Bay. It's, it's hard. I mean, getting in and out of the city is really challenging too. For somebody that's seen the Bay Area kind of evolve <laughs> over the years, I'm curious to hear, what do you think about where things are headed? Um, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in the Valley. Like, did you grow up in the Bay Area? I didn't. Western Maryland. A small oh, town. Wow. Yeah, I, I grew up in Fremont, which is like right across the bay here. Sure. And so uh, I spent like my whole life there before college and my parents worked in the valley and they were programmers too. And yeah, it's definitely, it's very different. I mean, first of all, obviously the, the build out is ridiculous. I mean, I remember going to Great America down in Santa Clara when I was like 10 years old and going down 237 on the bus. Oh, I can't believe my kid, my parents let me take the bus when I was 10. But like... There was nothing there. Like I remember going down and there was just like farm on both yeah. sides. There was no buildings. There was no like Marvel or Target or any of that. It's, it's just interesting to see the, sort of the expansion. So th there's like that part. Then there's the insane housing prices and the cost of living here, which is like ridiculous and well, well defined. And it feels like at some point we're going to reach a tipping point. I mean, a lot of people are sort of dissatisfied with living in, in the city yet they love it at the same time, right? which it's, it's really strange. Yeah. I hear that in almost every single conversation. Oh, right? really? There's, you always get to tease out like it's going great, but there's these things, but it's also great. So yeah, it's, it's a very unique place, but there's certainly a lot of challenges. And I think there's a point at which it just can't sort of continue like this. Like yeah. this is an unsustainable sort of expansion. Seems like there's some type of debt we have to pay off and totally kind of fix and yeah. we'll figure it out. Um, what about outside Silicon Valley? So Splunk is obviously a, a global company. There are a lot of expansion efforts and you're in all different markets across the world. Are there any markets outside the US that you're paying particular attention to? It'd be hard for anybody to say that they don't care about all markets, right? Sure. I mean, uh -huh. <laughs> Definitely, you know, Europe and Asia are huge markets and we care about them deeply. Um, so I, I'll just leave it at the fact that I'm focused on both of those. <laughs> I love it. Is there anything about your vision for Splunk you can share over the next uh, couple of years, 10 years? 100? I mean, I think we covered it pretty well. You're going to see a lot sure. more around deep, immersive mobile experiences and then very consumer oriented design that's like built for the user very rather cool. than, than the buyer. And so you'll look, look out for some really amazing deep design work from, from our team. Very cool. Tim, thanks so much for being generous with your time. This has been a blast. Yeah. Uh, is there anything, any final thought story or uh, call to action you would leave our audience with? Definitely check out all our mobile apps. They're, they're killer uses. Of, I didn't realize you had the AR one. That's great. Oh, the yeah. AR one is that's stellar. Yeah. yeah. I mean, every time we demo it, customers just are just blown away. I mean, it's just, and it was written by one guy. That's, that's the other thing. That's pretty epic. Um, yeah. actually speaking of Marissa, she used to run this, uh, associate product manager the program. She started the APM program at Google. Yeah. yeah. My wife was actually in the, one of the first batches at Google. Oh, very um, cool. So, uh, she, we created one for engineers when we were at Yahoo, when she was the CEO. Oh, so awesome. I ran, I ran the engineering version of that at Yahoo. We're fun fact. We're building one for media producers right oh, now. Really? So modeled after. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Cause I, we just thought it was like a genius strategy and we're trying to figure out how to scale. No, it works super, super well. Yeah. Um, but the point there is one of the star guys in that engineering program I had at Yahoo actually wrote the AR app for us here at Splunk. Oh, cool. So, you know, that's sort of what happens when you have programs like that. Very so cool. Sort of one individual can do a whole lot. So I think that's, that's sort of interesting. Wise words. Tim, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. 
Thanks again to our friends at Salesforce. Did you know Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience.